I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Now, we finished up last Sunday night um, our series on uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, being sanctified, holy sanctified, and, and um, before picking up another series, I wanted to uh, just take some time and consider some things that I believe are important for us. Uh, I have preached a couple of messages, I believe, at least one, and referenced this passage in another, but I think I may have even preached two distinct messages out of this passage we're going to look at tonight. This is not a repeat message, though. I'll tell you that right now. I will say that this isn't necessarily something that is, um, you know, really... Uh, fine-tuned and, and well-organized and outlined. We could maybe say it's a little bit more of a devotional thought tonight, but something that I believe to be very, very important for us to consider. Now, um, with that being said, I'm expecting this to be a pretty short message tonight. You laugh. Now we'll see. We'll see how it goes, okay? Um, but really, just some things that the Lord's kind of brought to my attention, and I feel are important to talk to you about. And so we're going to be in Exodus 33. I'm going to let you remain seated tonight, just because of the nature of this, we're going to be looking several different places in Scripture. But let's pray before we begin Exodus 33, all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as we look into this subject tonight, I pray uh, Lord, that you would guide me and help me uh, to be able to say what you want me to say and nothing that you don't want me to say. Lord, help me to rightly divide your word and to be able to show to your people what you've shown me. And uh, Lord, would you just speak to us, Lord, convict us where necessary and help us, Lord, as a result of hearing these things tonight to truly seek your face. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 33, just to give you some background here, of course, the earlier parts of Exodus record just that, the coming out of Egypt by the children of Israel. From chapter 20 on forward, we find the Lord giving the law to Moses there on Mount Sinai. In chapter 32, Moses comes down from the mountain and finds that the people have already disobeyed the Lord because they've made a golden calf to worship. And so now here they find themselves in a place God's just delivered them out of Egypt. And already they're at odds with God. And the Lord has made it clear He brought them out of Egypt in order that He could bring them into the promised land. And now He says in the beginning part of this chapter, verse number 2, He said, I will send an angel before thee, and will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. So the Lord now is saying, listen, I'll go before you, or I'll send an angel before you, I'm going to prepare the way for you into the promised land, but I cannot go with you, because I'm holy and you're sinful. By the way, there's a lesson in that. If we want to draw close to the Lord, there ought to be some holiness in our lives. Two different times in Scripture where we're, we, we get a similar statement. Psalm 24, 
what does it say? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul uh, to vanity nor sworn deceitfully. So clean hands and a pure heart to be in the presence of the Lord. James chapter 4 tells us, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Then it says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. If you want to know the Lord and you want to draw close to God, don't expect to do it with a bunch of sin in your life. And that was the issue here with Israel. Okay, they, they want the blessings of the Lord, but they are a sinful people. And now God says, because of my holiness, I can't be in your presence. I can't go with you because I'm going to consume you. Just the, the holiness of God doesn't mix with the sinfulness of man. So God says, I'll, I'll still bless you. I'll send my angel before you, but I cannot go with you. And so the Lord, or, or Moses here, appeals to the Lord. And he says in, in verse number 12, notice this, it says, And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou also hast found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people." And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. And again, I've mentioned this before. Think about this. Moses understood and realized that the blessing of God was not found in the land of milk and honey. It wasn't in the promised land where the blessing of God truly was found. It was in the presence of God because he said, if your presence doesn't go with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, I'd rather live in the wilderness in the presence of God than in the promised land without it. Now, I want you to notice, I've talked to you about that before, so I'm not going to beat that too much, but I want you to notice the statement that Moses said to the Lord in verse number 16. He says, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are on the face of the earth. So what, what is Moses saying? Moses is saying, we need the presence of God among us. More than we need the blessings of the promised land. We need the, we need the presence of God among us. I don't want to go any further unless the presence of the Lord is with us. Because he says, by the presence of the Lord being among us, being with us, two things become evident. First of all, that we have found grace in the sight of the Lord. And secondly, that we are different than everyone else in the world. I, I want to ask you this tonight. What is it that makes you different? What is it that makes us as a church different than any other church in St. Clair or Franklin County? Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we are the only ones. That's not at all what I'm saying. 
But I am saying that as God's people, we are to be distinct and different. We are what the Bible calls a peculiar people. Now, we often think of peculiar as in strange and weird. And there are some of us that might fit that description. But when the Bible calls us a peculiar people, it means that we're distinct. We're different. We are separated. We could say it this way. There's something different about us. Now, this is not in any way a prideful statement. In fact, this is something that I say out of a great deal of humility and even fear because I recognize that it's not always evident and obvious to those around me that there's something different. How often do we just kind of blend in to the world around us? I mean, I've had times, in fact, I was talking to a guy, what was it, a week ago, two weeks ago, and in the course of our conversation, I brought up that I'm a Christian, that I know the Lord, that I've been saved. And he looked at me and he said, I kind of thought that about you. That's encouraging to me when I hear that. But that doesn't happen to me every day. But folks, we are to be different. There should be something about us that stands out, not only to us, but to the world around us. Again, notice what it says in verse 16, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Moses said, this is what makes us different. God is with us. Now, listen, we could talk tonight about Baptist distinctives, things that make us distinct as Baptists from Catholics or Lutherans or Methodists. And by the way, I believe in all of those things. I am a Baptist, not by convenience, but by conviction. I believe these things. But it is not our distinctives that make us distinct. It's not our positions. It's not just our doctrine. Listen, that does give us a degree of difference, but what makes it, what causes us to know that this is right? I mean, what does the world say? Well, I mean, all, there, there's however many religions in the world, and they all believe something different, but at the end of the day, they're all kind of the same. Are they? Moses could honestly say, as a child of God, as an Israelite who had been chosen by God, he could honestly say, we are different than every other nation in the world because we are the only nation that has Jehovah. Now, I'm thankful that we're not the only ones. And I'm thankful that the gospel has spread around the world and that God has people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And I do not believe that you have to be just like me in order to be a child of God. 
But I do believe this, that if you are a child of God, there should be something that identifies you, even to the world around you, as different than everyone else. What is it? If it's not just our doctrine and it's not just our positions, you might say, well, it's our kindness. You know, we, we, need, to, we need to go out and bless people and be kind. And, and listen, folks, we ought to do that, but we're not the only kind people in the world. We're not the only compassionate people. We're not the only people that care. What ought to be different? I believe that God's desire for us is that it would become evident that we have the presence of God in our lives and in our midst. Let me just show you a few examples of this in Scripture. Genesis chapter 41, if you will. Genesis 41, the backstory here, of course, Joseph is in Egypt, he went from a, a slave to a prisoner to being second in command of all of Egypt, all because the Lord enabled him to interpret a dream for Pharaoh and then to advise him on how to respond to what the Lord was going to do. But I want you to notice something that is said about Joseph by, by the way, a king, Pharaoh, who does not know the Lord. Look what he says in verse number 37. And the thing was good, Genesis 41, 37, the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Here's a pagan king that does not know God. He knows many gods. But he says there's something different about this guy because the Spirit of God, the God, is in him. Hey, are you saved tonight? You have the Spirit of God in you. Pharaoh was able to see, we can't find another man like this in all of Egypt. I've never met someone like this before. There's something different there. What was it? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Now go with me, if you would, to Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. It's expressed a little bit differently here, but again by a pagan king that does not know the Lord. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is recounting how Daniel interpreted a dream for him. Look at verse number 8. It says, But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom, and in whom, Daniel, and in whom is the Spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Look down at verse number 18. 
This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Now here's the thing. Again, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have his theology right. He doesn't understand that Jehovah is the God of gods, the King of kings. He is the only one that can be called God. He's not one of many gods. He is God. He is the God. But in the midst of, of his misunderstanding, there was something he knew. There were wise men. There were magicians. There were sorcerers. There were people who were in tune with the spirit world, counselors and advisors that he had known all his life, but none of them were like Daniel because Daniel had a different spirit in him. Can I ask you, are others able to recognize the Spirit of God in you? Moses said, how shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? I love how Moses made that personal. He didn't just say, we are your people. He said, I and thy people. I'm one of them. I, Lord, I'm not just concerned with us. I'm concerned with me. You know what I've found in my years of life and ministry? A lot of Christians are content to be included in the number, but are not all that concerned with they themselves demonstrating the power of the Spirit of God in us and through us. We want to be part of something. We want to be part of a church where it's obvious that God is at work. Amen? I, I sure do. We want to be around people that, that obviously display the, the characteristics and qualities of someone who walks with God and knows God and even has the power of God on their life. We want to know that, but friend, can it be said of you as an individual that you have the Spirit of God in you and it is obvious? Now again, if you are saved, you have God's Spirit. But is it known? Is it distinct? Is there something about you that is distinct and different than the world around you? Go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let's back up. Let's go to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. In 1 Corinthians 2... We'll start in verse number 1. It says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, listen to this, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said, when I came to you, my determination was that I didn't want to convince you that I was a wise person, an intelligent person, a, a great and powerful leader. I wanted you to be absolutely convinced of the power of God. And I wanted your faith to rest in Him, not in me. That's a pretty powerful statement when you think about that. He said, I was with you in weakness. Our, in our weakness, His strength is made perfect. And Paul says, I was demonstrating not man's wisdom, not man's abilities, not my talents, but the power of God, the Spirit of God. It was real, and you could see it. Go over to chapter 4. Chapter 4. Verse number 19, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So there was an issue there where in this church that was filled with problems, there were some people that were kind of arrogant and prideful, and were kind of acting as though Paul was not coming to them. And he said, when I come, I'm not looking for what people say. I want to see the power of God in their life. Is it fair to say that most of us here know what to say. I can probably convince just about anyone the legitimacy of who I am in Christ and all those things by word, but that's not the real test of who I really am. The test of who I am is the Spirit of God working through me. Now, don't, don't misunderstand that. This is not like, like Paul's not saying here, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a litmus test. Whoever is, is powerful enough to heal the sick. Or who can speak in these other tongues? You know, we're going to know the power. No, no, no. The power of God is revealed in a Spirit-filled life. Is it evident in you? Could others look at you and say, wow, something's different about Him? I've known a lot of religious people. I've never known anyone quite like her. 
There is something different and unique, and it's not something that is mustered up in their own mind or their own strength. There must be something, whatever's different about them, it is God working in them. This needs to be true of us as individuals. But folks, can I say this also? This ought to be the defining characteristic of Mount Zion Baptist Church, that the Spirit of God is here. I want people to know, when they come into this assembly, that God is here among us. This ought to be our desire. Go to, we're in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 14, where I took you before and then made you go back. 1 Corinthians 14. Chapter 14. Verse 23. Now, again, understanding the context, this is talking about the issue of speaking in tongues within the church and and the order that they were supposed to follow and all of those things. We understand that this doesn't necessarily directly apply to us today. But notice it says in verse 23, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God. Stop there. What is he saying here? The best thing you can do for a lost person who comes through the doors of the church is to preach the word of God to him, because as the Word of God is preached, the secrets of the heart are made manifest. What's really going on inside begins to be revealed. Why? Because the Word of God is like a mirror. It's that looking glass. It's the perfect law of liberty. It's that sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so he says, as you preach, as you prophesy, the secrets of his heart are going to be made manifest, and he'll fall down on his face, and he will worship God. The idea is he'll be saved. And then look at this, and report that God is in you of a truth. He said, you could, you could all speak in tongues... Someone could walk in, have no idea what's going on, and they're going to think, you're crazy. By the way, there was biblical speaking in tongues, and then there's what you see happening today, which has nothing to do with what you saw in the New Testament. Nothing whatsoever. And you can look at a lot of these charismatic and Pentecostal services out there and what goes on, and I'm going to tell you this. If you're not part of that and you're not one of them, you're going to think they're crazy. There is some weird stuff that goes on in the name of the Holy Spirit, and it's not the Holy Spirit of God at all. Let me say it again. That is not God's Spirit. God's Spirit 
does not cause people to lose control of themselves and to laugh uncontrollably or shake or go running around and do all these things where they're totally out of control. In fact, the Bible says that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. So it's not, it's not like God takes over and we lose control. That's not the spirit of God. In fact, when you look in the Bible, the New Testament... And people who were under the control of a spirit and they had no ability and no decision making, that wasn't God's spirit. Those were demonic spirits. I'm just going to leave that on the table where it is. But I will tell you this. He says, if you'll preach the word of God, someone's going to come in, they're going to see as the Lord works in their life, shows them their heart, and they get saved, here's what they're going to know. That God is in you of a truth. That's the power of God. The Spirit of God working in the lives of other people. And he says, this, this, is, this was the need for the church at Corinth. Friends, this is the need of Mount Zion Baptist Church. We need God's Spirit here. And I understand He's here. But is that obvious? Is that evident? Can others see that? There's something different. God's in that place. One more place I want to take you in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. We find John, the apostle, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Verse number 12, he says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead." And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, Revelation was written to the seven churches of Asia, those that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. It was written directly to those churches, and here in verse 20, it says that the seven golden candlesticks are those seven churches. These churches... A small segment, seven churches, are representative of all churches everywhere in the sense that we are a candlestick. 
A candlestick is that which holds forth the candle. It holds up a candle so that the candle can light up a room. And you and I, as members of this church, are representative of a candlestick. We are the light of the world. We are to shine the light of the world to the world. So we hold forth the gospel. We hold up the light. The Bible says that the churches are the candlesticks. And notice verse number 13, that in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. You see, the Lord's churches are His churches. Not because of our doctrine. Not because of our authority. But because of His presence. Now, doctrine's important. If we don't hold the right doctrine, we're going to cease to be a church. If we don't have the right authority, we're not a church. But what I'm saying is this, what made these churches different than anyone who just calls himself a church? Well, they were the Lord's churches. They were candlesticks, and He was in the midst of them. Friend, may it be said of us, not just that we have the right doctrine and positions, that we use the right Bible, that we sing the right songs, that we do the right things, but may it be said of us by anyone who knows us that God is in this place. May it be evident. And so tonight, my challenge to you, my message to you is this. First of all, as individuals, are you seeking the presence of God in your life to the degree in which that others could see you and know there's something different about you. And are we as a church interested in the Spirit of God being so free to move in this place that anyone who walks through those doors knows there's something different about this church than a lot of other churches I've been in. There's something different because God 